a listener production. This is From Zero, where I get the real stories behind some of Australia's best business successes. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of LuxuryEscapes.com, financial journalist, author and angel investor. With my best mate from school, we co-founded Luxury Escapes, and the business has grown to turn over almost half a billion dollars annually without raising a dollar of outside capital. People ask me all the time, how do we start the business? And now I want to turn the tables. In this episode, I speak with Greg Roebuck from carsales.com. We ended up having to borrow money from my wife's parents towards the end of the month just to put food on the table and it was never you know we're going to be kicked out of our house but it was certainly very lean times and I think it's a good grounding for anyone to go through the process of gee every dollar is important and we better make this business a success because you know uh, it's going to cost me my house if we don't. Greg Roebuck is one of Australia's greatest ever entrepreneurs. Even if his name doesn't sound familiar, you'll almost certainly know the business he founded and spent 20 years running, carsales.com. Car sales is not only Australia's largest car site, but one of the biggest digital vehicle businesses in the world. The top 100 ASX business with a market capitalization of almost $5 billion. It has investments in Mexico, Brazil, South Korea, Argentina, and Colombia. But growing up, Greg didn't have huge business ambitions. He was actually a pretty normal kid with lots of potential, but he was less keen on schoolwork and more interested on playing on computers. So you went to, I think I was reading, you went to Burwood High as a kid, which was (laughs) one of the first schools in Victoria that actually had a computer, which if if you look back at the story of Bill Gates, he went to school in Seattle and his school was one of the first schools in the US that had a computer. So there's actually a really interesting synergy between you and and, and Bill. Um, As a a kid at, at school, were you a, were you really into computers? Were you into coding? Were you like that Bill Gates type person who was even at a really young age designing and programming stuff? Yeah, look, I I, I feel bad now. I should have I should have kicked on what Bill did, but uh, we had we had a few things in common. I guess he he also dropped out of uni, which I guess I'll cover in a in a moment, as as did Steve Jobs. But yeah, look, as I say, we were very lucky. We had a computer. It was a Digital Equipment Corporation PDP eight F, and the eight was for eight K of memory. It had a, a teletype keyboard and a paper tape reader and puncher and you know, the, the text had come out and explain how you meant to fold the tape so that you didn't put, you know, incorrect characters into the, the punched holes. And yeah. anyway, it was, it was really interesting. And I guess it was something that was new and I enjoyed it and I could type something in and you could see something come out the other end, which, yeah, was was certainly where I guess I enjoyed or first learn to enjoy what technology brought to the table. And so what kind of stuff were you? Were you making games? Were you, were you able to actually do actual real pieces of software on that computer? Uh, we, we would do more mathematical uh, equations and solve some of those. Later later on and early in my uh, real career, I guess, I did write some games, which I, I really enjoyed doing. And they weren't really exciting games and they certainly weren't particularly graphically oriented. But... Yeah, I, I enjoyed doing things that I hadn't done before, and I guess today I still do uh, enjoy that. But in those days, yeah, if you could get a, a, a program to run in 
8K of, of memory and work in the first 20 times, you were doing pretty well. It was very, very early days and, you know, bootstrapping that machine was probably 100 instructions put in using toggle switches on a, uh, on a big box. So, yeah, it was a big learning curve. Greg studied at RMIT after school and ended up working for a company called Diatron, which made early days accounting software, mostly for car yards. Diatron wasn't a huge business, but they were building software that nobody thought was possible in the early 1980s. And everything was going really well until a US-based competitor called Reynolds & Reynolds started up in Australia. The two businesses would compete against each other for a few years until Reynolds & Reynolds bought Diatron and both teams started working together. Over time, Greg would become a senior executive at the business, and along with the CEO, Walter Scotter, and a few other senior executives, they would decide to buy the business back from the US parent company. This move meant Greg would take out a second mortgage on the family home and make a huge bet in his own business. How was it when you when you really took a because you, whilst you weren't a founder of the business, you were of that business. Uh, you were obviously founder of the, of the business about, about to talk to you in a minute, but you weren't a founder of that business. And but you went along in what essentially was a management buyout, uh, a high leverage buyout, but you weren't running the business yourself. No, it was it was a learning curve, Adam. And I think you know, like most people my age, certainly people that I worked with around my age, you didn't really think that much about ownership of businesses and and you know the concept of equity I knew yeah there are people that own businesses and obviously my dad had owned his business but you know it wasn't I guess something that I'd really focused on as part of my career up until that point and you know Wall who was the CEO probably put that deal together he approached the US company and said look you know uh, we think we can put together a, a buyout and you guys don't want to have to come all the way down to Australia just for a little business like ours and and over the next sort of 12 months, we put together a deal that saw us buy it. But, yeah, for me, Adam, I, I spoke to my dad and obviously he had more experience than me. He said, get as much as you can, son. Um, yeah. uh, in the end, that wasn't necessarily on, op- on offer and, you know, I ended up getting what was available. But, uh, yeah, that, that second mortgage, you know, it was, it was very tough times and, you know, we weren't, we weren't a really profitable business where, you know, you buy in and instantly making money. So, yeah, we, we ended up having to borrow money from my wife's parents towards the end of the month just to put food on the table. And it was never, you know, we're going to be kicked out of our house, but it was certainly very lean times. And I think it's a good grounding for anyone to, you know, go through the process of, gee, you know, every dollar is important and we better make this business a success because, you know, uh, it's going to cost me my house if we don't. Yeah. And did it ever come through that period? Did you ever think that the buyout wouldn't be successful? Was it, was it, a, was it fantastic from the get-go or there were, even after the buyout, were there times where you sort of thought maybe maybe we should have just stayed a normal employee? <laughs> um, look, I, I think we, we all, we got huge support from our, from the staff. You know, I, I, I always remember that, that everyone was just so excited and so proud of the fact that, you know, this, this group of people had made the decision to to buy the company from its US parent and everyone was really supportive. And I was I was in charge of the technology team at that point. And, you know, I remember the, you know, Wall and the sales guys were, you know, we've got to get market share, we've got to get market share. And I'm like, well, market share doesn't pay back the mortgage. You know, <laughs> how, how do we how do we actually make money from having market share? And 
you know, I, I had this view that, gee, if we could connect all these customers together and leverage off the fact that we had more Holden dealers than anyone else or more Ford dealers than anyone else, we could, you know, leverage that advantage and therefore that market share would actually uh, pay some dividends. And uh, so I pitched this idea about connecting the dealers' computers to us and therefore to each other. And it, it was a great experience, great learning curve, Adam, because, you know, we sat in the boardroom, I can remember it like it was yesterday with the owners, new owners of the business. And I'm saying, we should do this and we can do all these really interesting things once we're connected to the the dealers' computers. And there was lots of reasons why we shouldn't do it. And Wall, who I certainly consider to be a, uh, a great mentor of mine, Wall's like, hey, I reckon, there's a, <laughs> I reckon there's some merit to this. We should look at this. And long story short, we invested in creating our own network with the dealers. And this is well before the internet was a term anyone had heard of. And that was a, a great uh, experience. And I loved the fact that, you know, Wall was prepared to take a risk and, you know, back an idea that, you know, at the time I, I look back and go, well, what do you mean make a network connecting, you know, competing companies and how's that going to add value to anyone? And uh, in, in reality, without that, we, we'd never have had car sales. I think that's pretty incredible to think that this is in the early 90s yep. before anybody heard the internet and, and you're a, a tech guy uh, by, by background and come up with this unbelievable entrepreneurial idea within this bigger business uh, to, to create what was one of Australia's first online marketplaces, really. Uh, it's a it's an unbelievable thing. Now everybody does it, but back then we didn't even have the hardware to be able to do it, let alone the software. Yeah, look, I, I, you know, I, do, I do look back at that, Adam, as, you know, one of the things I am most proud of, but I always make the, the comment that without someone prepared to believe in it, it would have just been a good idea and, yeah, you know, I, I think the dealer link network and all the all the things that we ended up running across that network, you know, have, have you know been very successful. But it needed not just the idea; it needed someone who had the belief and was prepared to to back it. Because it's always easy to say, "Yeah, I can see why that wouldn't work," or "I can, yeah, I can see some issues with that." And and as it turns out, yeah, you know, I used to go to the Reynolds and Reynolds in the US, big big listed company. And, I, and I'd pitch the idea of this network and I'd explain about all the good things that, you know, you'd be able to run across this network and you create these barriers to exit because, you know, the dealers just don't just use you for the, the software that runs their business. They use you for the, you know, the interactions they have with other businesses, you know, the car companies and, you know, the other dealers that they buy and sell things from. And I went to the US and pitched this and all the, the techos are like, oh, that makes so much sense. We should do it. We should do it. And it would get higher and higher up in the business and eventually they'd say no. And, you know, it took me a couple of years to find out that uh, the, the senior execs making the decisions were going, oh, it's going to cost us a lot of money and we'll miss our quarterly results. And, you know, I, <laughs> I always swore I'm never going to be running a business where the market decides whether something's a good idea or not. And, you know, Reynolds yeah. US never ever did it. You know, they, they tried to do something many, you know, probably 10 years later uh, to set up their own network, but it was it was too late and it was, the opportunity was gone. And I, I think, again, you know, great lessons learned from little things, but they allowed the market to make a decision that uh, in, in hindsight, they, they should have done what we did and they'd be a very different business today. 
And just to talk about the network, because it's such an interesting idea at the time. So you guys provided the accounting systems and, and some other systems for the car, car yards. But what you what your idea was, was let's say a Holden dealer in Nunawading had a spare carburetor and a Holden dealer in Sydney needed one, that those two dealers could effectively bid and sell that, that part to each other and you guys would clip a ticket on the way through. Is that, is that, was that essentially the idea? Um, mostly, yeah. It was in, in certainly in the 90s, 80s, you know, typically the distribution model for the, for the car companies, you'd have a, a distributor, you'd have maybe some, uh, some wholesalers and you'd have some retailers in terms of their spare parts businesses. And, you know, retailers could buy only from wholesalers or distributors and wholesalers could buy from distributors or the factory and, uh, distributors bought direct from the factory. But what we did was we said, well, it's a pretty inefficient market. And imagine you rang up saying, oh, I need a you know, taillight assembly for my, my Falcon. And you'd ring a dealer and the dealer would say, let me have a look. He'd look on his own system and say, no, I haven't got one. You'd ring another dealer and he'd say he didn't have one and might, might take you three or four dealers and you'd find the part. What was happening in the background was that those first three or four dealers would register a demand for a part and then the the algorithms would say oh we better order some of these parts and you know what was happening was you know the demand was one person but the systems all thought <laughs> gee everyone's yeah. after these these rear taillights for their for yeah. the car and and what we changed was the ability i guess for within the dealers or within the parts guys screen you know you ring up looking for that part he'd search all the dealers that they had a relationship with and uh, look at that same part number and see if that other dealer had it. If it did, it ordered the part and would put it aside for the person who'd originally ordered it. And again, it was really interesting. <laughs> I could bore you for hours, honestly, Adam, with intricacies of, of part systems. But the fact that we could search for a part number anywhere in Australia in under a second, which was our benchmark, uh, yeah. yeah, in the, in the early 90s, uh, yeah, that that was an industry changing system, and still today, it's it's the standard that uh, all other part systems are measured against. So you had this pretty incredible business you built with trading parts, and then I think you came up with the idea. So amongst amongst the, the guys at Reynolds and said, well, "Why don't we trade cars as well?" And I guess that was almost a precursor to what car sales became. But how did how did how did that go? That that part of the business. Yeah, and and you're right. The parts business, you know, it, it took off because you know back in the day, you know, car companies shared models. You know, the Holden had a Commodore and Toyota had a Lexan, which was basically the same car. So we'd sign up Holden dealers, and then Toyota dealers wanted to be able to access the Holden dealers, and then Toyota dealers wanted to work with themselves and same with Ford and Mazda and it was it was the genuine network effect and all these dealers are signing up. We even signed dealers up to the to the overall you know, management system just off the back of this parts trading tool. So we're thinking this is fantastic. Let's do it for for vehicles. So we and vehicles are a little bit different because they're not like a part number which is that part number is that thing. Cars are a little bit more unique. They might have a different colour or um, you know, different options. So we actually set up the software that whenever a dealer brought a car into stock, we'd get a copy of that into a central database and then any dealer would be able to search that database and then uh, transact with the dealer who owned the car. And it was, it was 
good technology and, you know, we developed it so it was seamless. The dealers didn't have to do anything. And I think, again, one of the reasons those systems were uh, successful, particularly the parts stuff, was the dealers didn't have to do anything different to what they normally did. So we, we worked on the laziness factor. Let's make it as easy for them as we could. And we thought, same with vehicles, you know, this will be great. And uh, in the end, it was a dud and it was a terrible dud. And, and, you know, we'd spent enormous amounts of time and effort to, to build the system. But the difference between a car and a, and a part is that, you know, dealers were happy to give up the, uh, the retail to wholesale margin on a spare part because it's not a big uh, number, but the, the wholesale to retail margin on a vehicle is a big number. And, you know, you'd be, the system worked. I, I can find that red BMW 323i that my customer wants and I'd ring up the other dealer or talk to the other dealer about selling it to me and he's like, no, <laughs> I'll wait for that consumer to walk into my door and, and I'll sell in the car and, and yeah, so look, we, we persevered at them for, uh, for a while trying to get the, the vehicle system to be adopted by the dealers because it did what the, the label on the packet said. It allowed you to yeah, search other dealers' inventory for the car you're looking for, but in reality it, it just never got going. And, you know, I'm sitting there going, well, that kind of sucks. What are we going to do with uh, all this wonderful technology we've built I know this central database where whenever a dealer buys a car, it appears in this database. Let's publish on this new thing called the internet. And, yeah, car sales was born. It sounds like one of the, one of the, the great pivots. So you, I think you, you had this business that you, you claim was a dud, but clearly in hindsight wasn't. And you set up a site that I think was called cars with a z.com.au, which was yeah. an interesting to before that as a main name, but probably a little bit harder to, to spell. Uh, and then – I think the legend has it is is you saw on the front page of Drive in in, in the Fairfax newspapers there was a, a graphic that said carsales.com.au and then and you saw that and, and then what happened? Well, yeah, so I tried to register the cars.com.au domain and I think I wrote to Melbourne IT because I don't think email was that big in those days. Um, they wrote back and said, oh, look, we're getting rid of uh, or we're reviewing generic domain names because realestate.com.au had been registered and news.com.au had been registered. Anyway, they wrote back and said, look, we're reviewing generic names and long story short, they wouldn't let me register cars with an S, so I registered cars with a Z and uh, we launched the first site under that brand and then uh, Fairfax actually came out and saw Wall and I and said, look, we're Fairfax and, you know, we're big and we're going to dominate classifieds online like we dominate classifieds in print. And they put down the drive section of the Sydney Morning Herald and you're absolutely right on the front page of the, the drive section of the Sydney Morning Herald was a, an image of a uh, the front of a car, so the grill and if you can imagine an oval-shaped logo, a bit like the the Ford-shaped uh, emblem on the middle of the grill had www and then on the grill itself it had .carsales.com.au and the caption was, you know, an end of car buying as we know it. We had the conversation with Fairfax. I think they offered us a couple of cents a car uh, that we collected uh, for them to publish on their, their drive website. Anyway, they left and, you know, I'm sitting there scratching my head and talking to Wild going, you know, it's a bloody good name. I wish I'd thought of that. And uh, anyway, I went, went away and thought, oh, I wonder if they did register that. And, and 
went away and registered car sales. So thank you again to Fairfax. Um, they, they gave us a very good brand. And you know, the sort the of the story, Adam, is many, many years later, I, I was very fortunate enough to go up to the Packer family farm called Elliston. And I was in a, one of the polo uh, huts, which is a three-bedroom unit with a couple of really good guys. And one of them had been the editor of The Drive part of Fairfax in Sydney at the time. And I was telling him the story and he, he looks at me and says, that was my cover Greek and where's my royalties? And I kind of chuckled and laughed and he was deadly serious. So. <laughs> <laughs> what made you think of, I think most people, myself included, wouldn't have thought to even check if it was available. Uh, I think we just assumed <laughs> that somebody would have taken it, if not Fairfax, someone else. What made you actually go to the, go to the effort of checking maybe this domain is still there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, it's it's funny, Adam. I I, I guess I, I was I was a bit annoyed with myself that it was a better name and a better brand than you know I'd come up with. But you know, I'm I'm always happy to learn from others, and uh, I, I'm very very happy not to be the person with only good ideas. And I think the fact that Fairfax had a very good idea, a credit to them, and uh, it was one of those. Gee, yeah, these guys are print, and maybe they they haven't actually put their internet uh, hats on yet and yeah just thought I'll, I'll give it a go and yeah and and look for years I guess I was fearful that you know there'd be some way they could take it off us and that there'd be some argument that that it was their intellectual property but the the practical was it's it's a reasonably generic name and uh, I guess I was always a bit paranoid but yeah very pleased to have had it as our brand and when it came to marketing, it was, it was much easier. We didn't have to tell people what we did. It was right there in the brand. And just like that, car sales was off and running. But back in the 1990s, there was no rule book to follow on how to build or fund an online trading website. So like lots of other great founding teams, they just kind of figured it out as they went along. Until that time, car sales were still being funded by dividends from Reynolds & Reynolds, but they were quickly running out of cash. How close did you guys come to running out of cash in car sales? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question when I look back. At, and because we were funding it through, you know, profits we were making in the Reynolds business, I guess we weren't really thinking, gee, we're going to run out of cash. We were just running out of paying ourselves dividends. And, yeah, I think that that was the uh, the big issue. But we did realise that we couldn't keep doing it. Adam and I, I think, you know, we, uh, we recognised the need to have some uh, some fighting funds and, we valued the business at the time at um, $30 million and, you know, we put $15 million up for sale and I think we ended up raising you know, seven and a half maybe, maybe uh, a little bit more. We, we got some other investment from a company called Yahoo. They weren't Yahoo 7 then and from one of the industry bodies, VACC, subsequent to our initial our initial round. So we had a little bit of money, which seemed like a lot of money at the time, and uh, moved out of the offices in Mount Waverley. And uh, we actually appointed a CEO, and he appointed a couple of very senior or a few senior people. And uh, I was on the board, and you know we watched that money <laughs> continue to decrease and decrease and decrease. And in the end. Uh, we, we terminated the CEO and the marketing director and the sales director and we got a half page in the business age, another dot-com bites the dust. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, we were, we were heading the wrong way and 
Uh, we put in an interim CEO and he did a great job and, yeah, burnt himself out. And, yeah, in the end I moved across. I was running along with another guy. We were joint CEOs in the Reynolds business. I was on the board at car sales and I moved across in uh, in May 2002 to be the CEO of car sales and it was obviously my baby and I didn't want to see it disappear. But to put it in perspective, I think we'd lost uh, $200,000 in the April and we had $600,000 in the bank. So, <laughs> you know, uh, it was it was dire, dire straits and and certainly at a board level the, there were conversations on, you know, do we need to shut this thing down and, uh, again, you know, <laughs> always, always easy in hindsight but, yeah, they were, they were really tough times and, you know, no director wants to be on the board when a business is close to the wall and, and we're very close to the wall. What was the saviour? Because if you... <laughs> Earning 200k and you've got 200k. That's three months runway. That's not that's not a lot of runway. Uh, what? How did you? And obviously you came in and as CEO. But how do you then turn the business around? Yeah, look, I I do think good timing and and you know, I, I I you know thank all the people in the business up until that that point you know that had that had done some really good things. But one of the, or two big changes I think Adam. Uh, one of them was we changed our business model in November 2001. And yeah, we 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 believed we were doing a better job than we were being given credit for, and we were like all classified businesses at the time that you charged X dollars for Y period of time, and that that was just what you did. That's what you did in newspapers. That's what you did in magazines. And in the end, we we were going broke, and we needed to change our model. And we tried all sorts of things, you know, a dollar a day or ten dollars a month or part thereof, and we just couldn't get traction. And so we changed our model where we, instead of charging on a listing, we charged on inquiry. And an inquiry for us was, you know, contact information and the vehicle that they're interested in. And we charged the dealers $30 for those inquiries. And, you know, it was it was tough. <laughs> you know, if, if you can imagine being a dealer, you're used to being able to say, I'm going to spend $1,000 on this media this month or I'm going to spend $3,000 when you go to a dealer and say, I'm going to charge you on inquiry. I don't know how many I'm going to send you and you're going to pay me at the end of the month on whatever it is that I sent you. <laughs> it's it's unheard of. And even today around the world, we're pretty much the only people that, that operate that model. There's versions of it, but we were certainly the first people to, to take that approach. And it did a number of things for the business, Adam, and I think one of the most important things is when you're in charge on inquiry, you're suddenly responsible for the outcome of that inquiry rather than a typical listings model. You you put the listing in the newspaper and you go, look, there's your listing. I've done my job. Whether you sell it or not, don't really care. Um, yeah. And, you know, when you charge on inquiry, well, Greg, your inquiries are crap. Um, I'm not selling any cars. And, and so the business needed to, to really focus on how do we help dealers convert those inquiries into sales because that's what they're ultimately going to hold us to account on. And, again, the classifieds model, no one really cared about the, the outcome. Uh, it was much more about the, the advertising. And we actually used to run uh, billboards when we could afford to that said, stop advertising, start selling. And it was very much around the view that, you know, 
advertising doesn't make you any money, Mr. Dealer. Selling cars makes you money. And, you know, we're the only people who are actually focused on helping you sell rather than advertise. So it, it really shifted the thinking in the business, Adam, towards, you know, the tools and the, the assistance we could provide to help a dealer convert inquiries into into sales. And I think that was one of the key, key things in the business or absolutely was a key thing in the business to shift us towards being involved in the success or otherwise of the sale and it, it tied us to our customers you know suddenly if we did a really good job dealers sold more cars and if we did a bad job uh, dealers sold less cars but more inquiries more money for us less inquiries less money for us and and we were, we were much more aligned and <laughs> years down the track you know dealers would ring me up and they go greg you know your bill went from 10 grand last month to 20 grand this month what the hell have you got to say for yourself Oh, I feel pretty good. You know, you've obviously got <laughs> as many cars and you're ringing to thank me. <laughs> so that, that was a key thing. And the other one, Adam, I, I think we changed the model for private sellers. And again, you know, the model historically had been you pay X amount of money and we advertise your car typically for a week or maybe two weeks if it was a trading post or maybe a month if it was one of the, the car magazines and if you think about it, you know, if you put an ad in the newspaper on a Saturday morning, which is how we used to sell cars back in the day, and it didn't sell, you'd put another ad in the next week. And if it didn't sell, you'd put an ad in the next week. And in reality, the publishers were making more money if they didn't get a result. Mm-hmm. If they did get a result because, you know, putting an ad in three times makes them three times the money of the, the one-time fee. So we, we took the uh, unheard of approach of, pay once uh, until it's sold, that's it. You never pay us again. You don't have to pay us each week because our job, our job is to help people sell their car. And you know, if it takes a day, a week, a month, a year, we haven't done our job until we, we've helped that person sell their car. So again, oh. it, it really helped the business and the people in the business focus on what was important, which is, you know, our job is to, to sell cars. You know, how can we help people sell cars? And, and I think the fixed fee, that's how everyone does it in, in automotive these days around the world. And, you know, it's, it's the right model. You know, you, you pay us the money to sell your car. Why, why should we ask you for more at any other point? But for me, you know, those, those two changes to our pricing model aligned the business behind what was important, which was helping either the dealers or the, uh, the private sellers get a result. And it, it really put us on the right side of that equation. Our, our job was, yeah, uh, <laughs> everyone was proud of the business, Adam, because we knew that we wouldn't stop at anything uh, to help someone get a result selling their, selling their car. Car sales was performing really well externally, but internally, the business was going through some pretty big changes. Yahoo, which owned a 15% stake in the business, secretly sold their stake to Fairfax without telling Greg and the board. And Fairfax, don't forget, was car sales' arch nemesis. Fairfax were an old school media company, so they weren't a good fit for car sales. And Greg was really keen to find an investor to buy that stake. Greg was approached by arguably the biggest name in Australian business to invest. And that person was James Packer. Within months, car sales and Packer had made a deal. Packer's business, CMH, would buy Fairfax's stake in car sales and roll in their own CarPoint website. After the deal, CPH would end up with a majority stake in the car sales business. And then, with Packer's support, 
car sales was finally ready to list on the Australian Stock Exchange. You guys listed on the ASX for what was $3.50 a share, I think. Uh, how, and obviously the share price is a lot higher than that now, but how important was the listing to car sales, both in terms of, of cash in the door, but, but also in terms of sort of the public knowing who you were after that more? Yeah, look, we, um, um, we always wanted to list, Adam, because we told our investors in 2000, you know, those dealers that did invest, uh, we told them that we would list on the ASX and we wanted to fulfil that promise. And certainly there were people who bought shares back in 2000 who were wanting to be able to, you know, realise that investment. And yeah, so we, we definitely felt we had an obligation. And, and certainly when we did the deal with PBL and James, uh, he gave us his commitment that he'd support a listing. We got very close in 2008 and then the GFC hit, but we were, you know, uh, we'd done a lot of work on the prospectus and then we thought the window had reopened in 2009, so we finished our prospectus and, yeah, we listed in, uh, I think it was September 2009 and, yeah, I think the uh, the listing was a great thing for the business on lots of levels, but what really happened was suddenly, you know, the the financial markets were talking about us and, you know, we were getting a lot of press uh, because we we're the first reasonable listing to, to happen post-GFC and who are these guys and certainly the, the, <laughs> the Fairfax newspapers and to a degree the News Corp newspapers weren't, you know, singing out praises. I think, you know, we were hurting their rivers of gold but, you know, no such thing as bad advertising and, you know, they, they were talking about us, not always in favourable terms, but uh, what happened was the car companies and their CEOs were reading about us and going, who are these guys? They're being claim- they're claiming number one automotive destination for consumers. Are we advertising on those guys? And so our display advertising business actually really uh, took a big step up. And, yeah, I think in when I look back over the journey, uh, being a listed business gave us that profile that allowed us to continue to grow that profile and, and gave us access to an audience that perhaps we wouldn't have got if we'd stayed as a as a private business. I'll fast forward a few years because you had an incredibly successful run as a, as a public and you still have had an incredibly successful run as a public company. But in 2017, after about 25 years at, at the business oh, at, at the business and at Reynolds, you handed over the CEO reins to, to Cam McIntyre, your, your long-time CFO. How how hard was that a decision for you who had really founded the business, built the business into a, into a huge business? Uh, was it a, was it an easy decision for you or was it, was it a tough one? I think for me, Adam, you know, I always, I, th- I think a lot of founders suffer from uh, imposter syndrome. Gee, one day someone's going to work out I'm, I'm not the right guy to run the business. And I used to be a little paranoid and still am a little paranoid and would always see the challenges and the problems and, you know, am I the right guy to take the business to the next level? And, look, I was very proud and, you know, uh, very humbled by the fact that the business continued to to succeed. And uh, But I did take the view that at some point as the business did get to a certain size, I wouldn't be the guy to, to, to keep leading it. I very firmly believe that life is short and we all need to be doing the things that uh, we want to be doing. And, you know, I lost a sibling and swore that I would make sure I spent a bit more time with my own family and uh, did some things that I, I wanted to do. And look, a listed company is fantastic. You get a lot of profile. 
but you you are a slave to a calendar. You've got your half-year results, your full-year results, your AGM and your budget, and you start again every year. And uh, I didn't want to be a part-time CEO. I didn't think that was what I should be. So I, I did make the decision probably some years before I did step down that I would have a timeline. And, and that was really liberating because I no longer had to be the person at the pointy end making all the great decisions and the wonderful decisions to ensure that, you know, my position was, you know, never under threat. I was actually quite liberated by saying, you know, <laughs> at some point I'm going to go and live off on an island somewhere and uh, you guys are all going to look after the business and I don't want to get to that island and someone says, hey, how come you get to live on an island? And I go, oh, I used to work at car sales and they go, Who? <laughs> and, and you know it was it was a great conversation to have you know you guys are going to make this business more successful without me than with me and you know I'm, I'm very very proud of uh, the job that Cam is doing he's uh, he's a great guy and continues to do a great job and you know I, I'm really proud that the business is you know more successful certainly more valuable today than it was when I stepped down but I, I'm really proud of the fact that that was always the expectation that, uh, yeah, we'd set ourselves up for long-term success. You know, we have businesses now in, in multiple parts of the world and uh, Cam's doing a fantastic job expanding that uh, every day. As we recall this interview, car sales is now a $4.5 billion business. Uh, I think just on that note, do you have, do you have a – even now, as, as you're no longer running the business, but but certainly to you and, and Cam and, and Pat and the guys who have been so instrumental and Klossy and the guys who have been so instrumental in this business, obviously, while, do you, ever, do you guys ever sort of just think, take time to, to reflect and celebrate what you've built? And, and there aren't too many founding teams that have built a $4.5 billion business in Australia. There's probably 20 or 30. Do you guys ever sort of reflect on, on what you've accomplished? <laughs> I, I have to say, Adam, it's, it's actually much easier uh, from outside the business and, you know, culturally and, uh, you know, I make no apologies culturally, you know, a bit of paranoia means you don't get a chance to stop and celebrate your wins. Uh, you're always onto the next potential scenario that we better make sure we're prepared for. And, you know, we've always been a business that you know, has to be ahead of the curve. We have to be world's best at what we do. We have to, we have to. Uh, so, yeah, we, we probably never did really stop and go, you know, shit, <laughs> this is amazing. Whereas today, I do that much, much more. I, I, I'm incredibly, you know, proud of, of the business. And yeah, I do pinch myself and go, gee, <laughs> you know, just this, you know, software guy from, from you know, Burwood High and, and, and look at this business. So easier on the outside. But look, I catch up with the guys. I, I spoke to Cameron yesterday. It was actually his birthday yesterday. So happy birthday again, Cameron. Uh, I catch up with Pat regularly. Pat's the, the current chairman. Uh, Wall, who, who's still on the board and was chairman for a very long time, uh, I still see regularly. So, yeah, look, we, uh, we're we very fortunate, Adam, and, you know, I think we all have uh, uh, enjoyed the journey and, and, and feel very privileged that, you know, we were able to be involved and uh, work with some great people and all the way from the board to, to everyone in the business, you know, they, 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 they made me look good and... and yeah, thank you to them. Greg has now retired from running car sales, but he's still keeping himself really busy. 
he manages a portfolio of investments and sits on a few different boards. He even has his own woodwork factory in Richmond, where he makes artisan items for sale. And that was Greg Roebuck, founder of carsales.com. And you've been listening to From Zero with me, Adam Schwab. Our producer is Lindsay Green. Audio producer, Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, search From Zero Podcast with me, Adam Schwab. Listener.